chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to, said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your, that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the, Ke the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites. Father, we do want to thank you that you, uh, we do live in a society where we have peace and we pray that uh, we would not take that for granted and that that would continue. But we pray that as Christians we would utilise that for the sake of uh, honouring you and proclaiming your gospel. Thank you, Father God, for revealing yourself to us uh, through the scriptures and the promises that you've made to Abram and uh, the fulfilment that we've received in Jesus. Father, we just ask that uh, as we um, focus now on your word that you would... Give us a heart that really is seeking after you, that we would want to know you and love you and trust you and obey you. We pray the same for the children in the Sunday school. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> it's interesting in our society that when we make promises that are important, 
we tend to do so by signing on the bottom line, don't we? <clears throat> we add our name, a, a signature, to important promises. That's how we deal with a whole stack of stuff, uh, including, of course, uh, contracts. Some of the commitments that we make in our society involve ceremony, and I'm thinking specifically of a Christian wedding where uh, a couple, you know, where we make uh, solemn promises to each other in the sight of God, in the presence of witnesses, and then having made public, a public declaration of our promises, what do we do? We sign on the bottom line. <clears throat> and, I, you know, I conduct a few of these weddings, and I've got to tell you, you get used to, used to signing your signature. There are so many documents that need to be signed. In the ancient world, there were some uh, commitments which involved uh, making solemn promises uh, where the commitment was a whole lot more than just signing on the bottom line. For example, when two kings made a treaty with one another, uh, what they did was they, it's, it's said in the Bible that they would cut a covenant and it went like this. Uh, first of all, animals would be slaughtered. Uh, then those animals would be, the carcasses would be sliced in two, and then the two halves of the carcasses of the slaughtered animals would be, uh, would be stacked up on piles facing each other. And then the two kings making the covenant would walk through, they would walk between the two piles of slaughtered and split carcasses. That's what they did. Uh, you've got to hand it to the ancients, don't you? They, it's a whole lot more interesting than just picking up a pen and signing a piece of paper. But why did they do that? What was it symbolising so graphically? Well, it was this. What they were saying is this. I am committed to fulfilling the promises that I have just made. And if I do not fulfil the promises I've just made, then may that which has just been done to these animals, may it happen to me. May I be slaughtered. May my carcass be butchered in two. May my flesh be left to, uh, to rot in the sun and to be uh, devoured by vultures and, and, uh, <clears throat> and, and hyenas and the beasts of the field. That's what they were saying. And they called it to cut a covenant. And it is quite dramatic. It is quite graphic. And uh, as I say, it's a whole lot more interesting than just signing on the bottom line. Now, today in Genesis chapter 15, God cut a covenant with Abram. Now, you might want to open that up in your Bibles on page, uh, 500, uh, page 50. And I want to firstly just set the context by refreshing as to where we got to last week, and thankful for Peter for stepping in for me at the last moment uh, last week in terms of preaching. But um, where we pick it up, Abram was feeling like he needed some reassurance. Remember what happened last week. Abraham's nephew Lot had uh, got himself into a bit of a pickle. He was uh, caught. Uh, he'd gone and lived near Sodom 
And as a result, he got into a bit of a mess uh, and got caught in the crossfire between some kings who apparently had made a covenant with one another and uh, some of the kings had breached the covenant and the greater kings were saying, well, now that which happened to those beasts is going to happen to you. We're going to slaughter you. We're going to cut your carcass. And uh, Lot got uh, tangled up in that whole mess and Abram had to go in a rescue mission with 300 uh, men uh, to rescue his nephew Lot. And uh, under God's providence, he won. He actually defeated some of those kings. And uh, when we pick it up here in chapter 15, verse 1, we see how Abram's feeling. And if you take a look at it, how is he feeling? He's feeling actually like he's a little bit afraid, isn't he? Uh, Why was he afraid? Well, maybe he thought, well, I've just defeated these kings with only 300 men. I'm pretty vulnerable now to attack from counterattack from them. That's a possibility. But when we look further in the text, we understand more clearly what it was that was causing fear in the heart of Abram. And it seems that his greatest concern was that what God had promised would not come true. What, now, what are the three things that God had promised Abram? He promised him firstly a people. I'll start you off. Secondly, a Thirdly, a a blessing. A people, a land, and a blessing, the three promises that God made to Abram. And so when you have a look at uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, let me read that out for you. It says, After this, that is, after the defeat of those kings, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I will protect you. I am your very great reward. Remember, he'd refused the reward from the king of Sodom, hadn't he? I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remained childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, in the ancient culture in which Abram lived, if a man did not have a son to inherit his estate, then legally, this is not Old Testament law, this is the law of the culture of peoples with whom Abram mixed, legally, uh, a man could actually adopt the son of uh, one of his servants and that son would then become his heir Uh, Unless, of course, following that, he gave birth to a son himself. And it seems that that's what has happened here. Do you remember that uh, Abram started out his life in in what city? Anyone remember? Uh, My kids, when Andrew, when he was a little baby, he used to love that word. Uh. (laughs) Ur of the Chaldeans. And and then uh, Abram's uh, father, Terah, took the family and they headed across to a place called Haran. And it was there in Haran, they got settled there, but in Haran, God spoke to Abraham and Ab- told him to leave Haran and go to the land that God would lead him to, which was Canaan. In travelling from Haran to Canaan, Abram would have had to have passed through Damascus. And Damascus is a, the, the fertile plain of Damascus 
People have been living there since long before Abram. And uh, Damascus in Syria, of course, is a place which we need to be praying for today uh, in, in, in the terrible situation that they find themselves in. But it seems that what's happened is that in Damascus that the family of Eliezer have gone and attached themselves, have connected themselves with, with Abram and with his household and have become his servants. And that uh, Abram has decided that uh, this young man, Eliezer, would be his heir. So that's what's happened there. And that's his fear. His fear is, my servant boy, he will be my heir. Where is my son? Where is my son? And he goes on to say to God, and what about the promised land? How can I really be sure? Do you ever have questions or doubts or fears or anxieties or frustrations in your relationship with God and in the way that God is dealing with you? I'm sure that from time to time many of us do when things aren't quite going the way that we would have hoped. And that's okay. Uh, the, the Bible is replete with, uh, with godly men and women uh, wrestling with God in prayer and crying out to God with questions, questions like, why are you allowing these things to happen to me? How long will I have to continue to suffer? Why is it that the godly suffer but the ungodly are prospering? How can I be sure of your love for me? And that the Psalms in particular uh, are, uh, <clears throat> are wonderful poems expressing these real human emotions expressed to God. And what we do learn is that uh, God's delays do not equal God's denials because sometimes it's the case that God is testing us because God knows that we need to learn the lesson of faith and trust. And he wants us to trust him more and trust him more deeply. And we see something of God's love and mercy in verses 4 to 8 as God responds to Abraham's doubts and his fears. Because how does God respond? Does God rebuke Abraham for his doubts? No, he doesn't actually. Far from rebuking Abram, what God does is God comforts Abram and God reassures Abram. He speaks to him, which makes Abram a prophet because God revealed himself directly to Abram. And later on we'll see that God actually revealed the future to Abram as well. Abram is described later on in Genesis as being a prophet. But God speaks to him. How reassuring is that? In verse 5, God says to him, look, go out to the clear desert night sky and just look at the stars. See if you can count them. Because guess what? You can't count them. And even if they had telescopes back then, the, 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 the more powerful the telescope, the more stars that you can't count. That is how awesome the heavens are. And what God is saying to Abram in a real physical demonstrable way, he's saying, hey, so shall your offspring be. Just like that. And then uh, God, uh, <clears throat> Abraham, we're told, believed in what God promised. And that uh, in believing, 
It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a fascinating verse because people ask the question, how can a sinful human being be right with God? And the answer that people have come up with throughout the generations and throughout different religions throughout the world is you get right with God by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, by being religious, by performing ceremonies, by being moral. By be and yet Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It is trust in the promises of God which are the means by which a man or woman or child is declared to be right in God's sight. More about that later on. But Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But what about the land? He says in verse 8, how can I be assured that my descendants will inherit this land? And you've got to ask the question, well, what more could God do to assure Abram? A couple of years back, there was one of our political leaders, I won't say who it was, you probably know, <clears throat> but he said, you can trust me. And he said, <laughs> and he wrote a contract. Do you remember that? And he, a contract between his, his government and the people of, and he said, and he signed it. And he said, if I break any of the promises, I'll resign. Remember that? It'd be interesting to dig up that contract, wouldn't it? Well, God did a whole lot better than that because in the rest of the chapter from verses 9 to verse 21, what did God do to reassure Abraham? God cut a covenant. That's what he did. In verse 9, God asked Abraham to go and get a heifer, which is a, it's a young cow, hasn't given birth yet. Uh, go get a heifer, get a goat, get a ram, which is a, a male sheep. Get a dove and get a pigeon. And what did Abraham then do with that cow and, the, and with that sheep and, and, and with the goat? He slaughtered them. He sliced them in two. He piled up the two halves of the beasts on piles opposite one another. And he waited. He had to shoo away some birds of prey and then he fell asleep. And in that sleep, something amazing happened to Abram, which arguably is the most profound thing that happened to the man. A deep darkness fell over him and God revealed to Abram something of the future. Something of the future. In verses 12 through to 16... Certain things must happen before Abram's descendants would inherit the land. First of all, Abram's descendants would be enslaved and would be mistreated for 400 years. Friends, the Bible never endorses slavery. The Bible never says that slavery is a natural condition of man, as was claimed on Monday night. That was Socrates who said that. Slavery is the result of human sin. That one man should actually own another man who's made in the image of God is not God's plan and purpose. And when, God, when the Old Testament talks about slavery, it's generally just describing that it happened or it's, it's, it's giving regulations so as to limit sinful behaviour in, in respect to slavery 
or it's talking about the slavery of God's people, Israel, in Egypt for 400 years. And that's what would happen. Secondly, Abram's descendants would be released from slavery in order to occupy the land, by which time they would be very numerous in number. And this would happen when, we're told, the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. We see that in verse 16. Do you see that? Sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. You see, some people wonder, why did God allow Abram's descendants to take that land by force and to eject the occupants of the land by military force? Some people wonder, why is it that God seems to be controlling armies that bring about death and destruction in the pages of the Old Testament? And it's got, and the question, of course, is, is that fair? Or do we just have a vengeful, wrathful God of the Old Testament and that's the God of the Old Testament? Well, forget about him. We just believe in the God of the New Testament. Well, yes, of course it's fair because God is a righteous God. God is just in all of his judgments and when, he, uh, when these things happen, it is because God is executing judgment over sin. And the sin of the Amorites, which we learn about later on in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, was great. Uh, their sin was as bad, if not worse, than the sin of mankind prior to the flood. Their sin was as bad, if not worse, than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, their sin involved gross sexual perversity which I don't even want to describe, but it's described in the pages of the Old Testament, and gross idolatry, worshipping blocks of wood and blocks of stone and ignoring the one who created all of those stars in the sky. God is always right in his judgments. And the occupation of the land, in the occupation of the land, God would uh, wait until it was time to execute judgment on the occupants of the land. Uh, God, is, uh, a, God is not partial either. Uh, later on in the Old Testament, we learn how God used the Assyrian armies uh, in order to punish the northern kingdom of Israel and the Babylonian army in order to take the people of Judah into exile. God is not partial. God is righteous. God is just. God is fair in all of his judgments which are judgments against sin. So that's the dream. And what we see there is that God has given Abraham, Abram a glimpse of the future. But still, how can Abram be sure? Well, in verse 17, the animals had been slaughtered. They'd been butchered in two. They'd been heaped up on two piles of meat. The sun had just set. And what happens next? Well, that's the point in the ceremony where the two kings walk through, isn't it? Well, this is the point in this ceremony where the one king appeared. A blazing torch, a smoking fire pot, the very symbols of the presence of God himself. And God appears and God is the one who walks through 
between the piles of sacrificed animals. What is God saying? God is saying, you can trust me. I will fulfil my promises. In a way that uh, was the most explicit way that an ancient man could possibly be assured, God is saying that if my promises to you do not come true, then may that which has happened to these animals happen to me. May I be slaughtered, may I be butchered into, may I be left to rot in the sun and eaten and devoured by animals. So what God is saying to Abram is, Abram, trust me, I've signed on the bottom line on this one. God cut a covenant with the blood of a sacrifice. And uh, friends, does that help us a little bit to understand a little bit more deeply what Jesus said in the upper room when he took the cup and he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. You get it? It's more than just remembering the blood of Jesus. It's remembering that there's actually a covenant being cut here. More about that in a moment. So that's where Abraham was at, but things weren't quite so clear for his wife, Sarai. And the more God makes promises and assurances, and the longer it goes, and she's not having a baby, there's a discrepancy there for Sarai. And, you know, one of the other customs of the time was that uh, if a woman could not provide a, an heir for her husband, then she could offer her maidservant up to the husband. We've got documented uh, evidence of that being a custom outside of this passage in the Old Testament. And if the maidservant gave birth to a, to a son, then that son was then legally considered to be the son of the wife, not the maidservant, and therefore the heir. And that's why Sarai says, well, she, she uh, says, maybe I can make a family through my servant, my maidservant, Hagar. And so that's what she does. She offers her maidservant to be a surrogate. So Sarai knew the promises that God had made, but she's thinking, it's just taking too long. I reckon that God maybe needs a helping hand. So I'll get involved with this myself. Let's have a look at it in chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. I don't know if you saw the similarities there between Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, where the wife takes the initiative uh, to do something which she knows to be contrary to the will of God. And the husband, of course, you know, he takes a stand and says, no, look, honey, you know, God has promised, you know, I saw the 
he cut a covenant with me, he saw the stars in the sky and he spoke to me. No, we're just going to... Now, what does he do? Whatever you say, honey. Whatever you do, sweetheart. He just goes along with her, much like Adam did with respect to Eve, rather than taking a manly lead in the relationship. And he does that, you know, as if he's thinking that, you know, having intimacy with this other woman and fathering a child through this other woman, well, you can kind of do that and everything's going to be sweet. That's wrong. Friends, God's plan for sex is within marriage. And God's plan for marriage is the union of one man and one woman who are committed to each other for life. And it is in that context that procreation, the childbirth and child nurturing, occurs. And when we mess around with that, when we mess around with sex outside of marriage, when we mess around with marriage itself, then we are playing with fire because what we're doing is we're messing around not only with the will of God, but we're playing with the hearts of people. And we see that this is what happens here. You see, Hagar, think about her. In verse 4, surprise, surprise, Hagar now feels a connection to Abram. She's slept with him. And she's, she's achieved what the wife could not achieve. She's now carrying his baby. It's messy. Very messy. And how does Sarah deal with that? Does she, does she say, well, I made a mistake. I did the wrong thing. No, no, no. She, she blames Abram, doesn't she? Verse 5. Verse 5. Verse 5, then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And so their relationship is now in rocky territory. What does Abraham do? Does he say, okay, look, I'll... I'll sort this out. No, no, no. In verse 6, he shifts it back onto her. He says, look, she's your maidservant. You deal with her. You sort it out. You muck around with sex, muck around with marriage, and you're mucking around with human hearts. And so Sarai then mistreated her, and in verse 7, Hagar fled. And she fled for her homeland, Egypt. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that she fled to her homeland, Egypt, going back to her own family, but we know it because in verse 7, she rested at a watering hole and it was on the road which, which cuts through the desert on the road to the Egyptian city of Shur. She's heading back home. She's pregnant. She's alone. She's heading back to her parents. And they tell me when you're on a journey through the desert, any desert, one thing you don't want to do is pass by a watering hole 
without seeing it. Because if you miss it, what happens? You, you die. You die. This watering hole meant life for Hagar, but not just physically, also spiritually. Because it was at this watering hole that an angel of God appeared to her. And the angel told her to go back to Abram and Sarah, deal with it, and give birth to a son whose name would be Ishmael. Through, through Ishmael, Hagar would have many descendants. There's no promise there of a land. There's no promise there of a blessing. Only the promise of, of descendants. And this son, Ishmael, would be a wild donkey who would live in hostility with his brothers. And the rest of the Old Testament bears that out in terms of his descendants as well. Friends, Sarai thought that she was lending God a helping hand in order to fulfil his promises. And my question, I guess, is can we sometimes do that? And my answer to that is yes, we can. And specifically, I want to talk about the key issue of how does a sinful person get right with a holy God? I want to talk about salvation here. Because you and I have received the promises that God made to Abram. Because Abram's descendant, Jesus, has created a people, a forgiven people, people who come from all nations, so that the whole world, every nation on the world has been blessed through him. A people whose home is the heavenly land. But you know, there's so many people who say, well, it can't be as easy as that. Freely belonging to God's people? Free home in the heavenly land? Free blessing of forgiveness for people from all cultures and all races and all nations? Ah, just by trusting in the new covenant? They say, I've got to help God out here. We've got to help God out here. If we truly want to be right with God, then we must add to what God has promised our own good works, our own religiosity, our own morality. Now, in Paul's day, in the New Testament, this was a huge issue. It particularly picked up in the book of Galatians, where people were saying, OK, you've got faith in the promises of God as they are expressed in the gospel of Jesus. Terrific! But you also must be circumcised if you truly want to be a Christian. And people today say, you've got faith in the gospel of Jesus, <clears throat> that's fantastic, but you also must be baptised. You also must do this. You also must do that. And what Paul says, particularly, particularly in Galatians, is that when we think like that, then we are thinking like Sarai. And we're as if we are the, the, the children of the servant woman, not the children of the free woman, not the, not the children of Sarai. 
When what we need to be is we need to be like Abram, who when God showed him the stars in the skies, in the sky, we're told that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Friends, we have no reason whatsoever to doubt about God's promise of free forgiveness in the gospel. We've got no reason to doubt it because of how God actually achieved that free forgiveness. How did he achieve it? Well, God took the whole covenant thing and he lifted it to a whole new level when he cut a covenant in the blood of his own son, Jesus. On the cross of Calvary. What greater confidence could we have? What greater assurance could we have of God's love? That it wasn't some butchered cow or butchered goat or butchered lamb, that it was his own butchered son who died on the cross for us. And if God so loved us when we were still sinners, when we were at enmity with God, then how much more does he love us now that we are his friends, reconciled to him, recipients of these great promises? So let us never doubt God's love. Let us never doubt the promises of the gospel. Never, may we never try to add what, to what God has already done. He doesn't need a helping hand from us. But what he wants is our faith and he wants our transformed lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the incredible confidence that we can have in your great love for us. For you cut a covenant, a new covenant, in the blood of your own son. And by his sacrifice, our sins have been dealt with. And by that covenant, we are assured of your promise to us. Help us to be people who rest in that promise. Help us to be people who enjoy it and love it and uh, seek to live obediently to you. For we are your people. We have the hope of your heavenly land. And we have surely received your abundant blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.